Good, so feels like there's some competition. It's, a, <laughs> it's actually very interesting and pleasurable to me to sit and listen to the listen to the sound of the rain and I hope that I'm going to be audible above it. So here we are, the end of our second full day of practice together, right in the middle of our retreat. And probably it feels like no time at all since you arrived and also it feels like lifetimes and so it has been you know so many different moments different mind states different experiences under the bridge even in this realm of not so much uh, impingement from or not so much additional impingement from the outside and i'd really love to ask you each of you how are you Some of you might, that might immediately say, well, if you ask me how I was, I'd say that. I'm really fed up with this. I'm counting the hours till I go home. Or I've eaten too much and my tummy hurts. Or <laughs> I'm exhausted, I can't sleep here. I'm blissed out. But it might also be that when I, if I were to say to you, how are you, the mind would stop and it would be actually quite difficult to answer the question. I find that's the most of, most common experience when people ask me how I am. You kind of you grope for what's the appropriate answer because there's so many things that one could say. And then sometimes people say, well, how are you really? And that's even more challenging. <laughs> you know? And so this really points to the um, the shifting nature of what and who we are how we describe ourselves and I thought it maybe it's, it's a good time in our practice together to kind of backpedal a little bit and um, investigate this teaching of anatta or not self and some of you have heard, probably heard dozens of talks on this subject and some of you maybe even the word anatta a-N-A-T-T-A, not-self. An is the, the negative prefix. Atta is the word in Pali for self. Pali being the language of the early Buddhist teachings. So we, we've been talking a lot about anatta, selfing, not-self, but we haven't really um, revisited you know, the basic teaching around this. So I'm going to try and do that this evening knowing that it's also a, a deep and complex teaching and one that people right back to the time of the Buddha have had trouble getting their heads around intellectually because it, is, it's, it just is intellectually troublesome. So I hope that what I say will have some elements of clarification for you. And if you find, find at the end of the evening you still feel mystified by it all, you know, don't worry too much. It's an, it's an unfolding discovery. But the Buddha really um, pointed to this as what being one of the fundamental characteristics of all phenomena, this quality of anatta or non-self. And there are two ways in which maybe we can investigate it. One is the way which um, he most frequently taught, which is to 
ask of any thing or experience that we encounter, is there any phenomenon in the world that we can really truly say is I or me or mine in any stable or lasting way? So the thing that we most commonly identify with is this body. But this body is in a process of constant change and it's also outside of our control. So the best that we can say is that we kind of temporarily identify with it and it's the the locus of our experiencing, the centre of our experiencing, but there isn't actually anything stable there that can create um, a kind of stable resting place for the sense of self because the body is always changing. And moreover, we have a slightly sort of um, illogical relationship with the body because sometimes we talk as if we are the body. So if, if I say to you, how old are you? You'll give me a number. And what you're really saying is that this body is that age. But is that exactly who you are? You know? So sometimes we talk as, as if we're identified with the body. Sometimes we talk as if we're the owner of the body. So these are my eyes, my hand, my hair. You know? My hand will probably be my hand for most of its existence. But you know, my hair, <laughs> it goes to the hairdresser and then it's in the bin. And you know, when is that really my hair anymore? Oh, the skeleton in the walking room. What's happened to the owner of that skeleton? At what point did that, you know, cease to be me in relation to that person? Or this jumper that I'm wearing, that at the moment I call my jumper, Previous to this, it belonged to one of my nieces, and before that, it belonged to the shop from which she bought it. And after me, it'll have, probably have another owner. So, the uh, you know, the, it's only temporarily my jumper. And those are just you know, a few examples, but we can start to investigate every single aspect of our experience. The best we can say that it's it's temporarily by convention, mine, for the time being. But there's no stability there because all these things that we might identify with are themselves in a process of constant, constant change. So this is one way that we can investigate. And then the other way to investigate is the question, well, who am I? And this is a really interesting one, and this is why we get it's difficult to say how we are also. The answers, if, I, if, if you're asked who are you, the answers that you give are dependent on the context in which you're asked. You know, if you're going to the polling station or to get your COVID jab, you, know, you give your name and your address and that's sufficient, that describes who you are. You're a different person to your partner or your child, you know. You see me perhaps as being one particular way, but my nieces or my nephews might see me in a completely different way. You know, 
they think mindfulness is a joke because if I'm if I'm mindful, they're not really sure what mindfulness is. <laughs> if we if we're on a date with somebody and they say, "Who are you?" It's different. It's a different different feeling. Different answers are elicited. If you go to your dentist, how does your dentist see you? So all these ways that we that we can define ourselves, or that we're seen, or that we pre- present ourselves, are dependent on a context. And it's not that we're being inauthentic or fake. Yeah, so I'm not sitting here, up here, in this moment as the teacher. Uh, you know, being fake. I hope. But I, I'm just, uh, we, we show up in a different way, as a, at, in a different context. Sometimes I'm, I'm sitting down there and then I, I'm in, in, in another context. But the fact that it's, it's difficult to put a finger on it, it makes it, it makes it tricky to answer this question, how am I or who are you? Tell me, tell me about yourself, tell me who you are. And often that goes with the question, what do you do? Which is such a, an annoying question and a difficult question, you know. Unless you happen to have a very clearly defined profession with a nice status attached to it. And you can say, oh yeah, I'm a consultant paediatrician or something. But if we're not working or we're doing different things or things that are less easily explained or recognised... That's not a very nice way to be encountered. It's, you know, when you go to a, a, a gathering and the first thing that people say to you, so what do you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet we, we so, we're, so we're, we are all these different things, in a way, all these different things and none of them. And yet, in spite of that, we, we kind of want to find the real the real. You know who who are you really, Jaya? Who was the real Amy Winehouse? Yeah. So there's a lot of. I think it was last week. There was this program from her family. You know who who was the real Amy Winehouse? We we kind of want to want to get to the essence of people. There's a big thick biography of Ajahn Chah, who um, Gavin quoted yesterday, the Thai forest teacher compiled of memories of him by different um, different students and disciples and the conclusion of the author Ajahn Jayasaro is that there were many many, many Ajahn Chahs and he was experienced differently by different ones of his students yeah. broadly speaking it seems that with his western students he was a very kind of kind and jovial figure because they were so hard on themselves but with some of his Thai students who were more sort of laissez-faire in their practice he was, a, he was seen as much stricter you know, he, he manifested different sides of his personality in different contexts but still you know, people who really want to uh, understand who Ajahn Chah was and what, his ta- what he was teaching and looking for who was the real Ajahn Chah what was he really like and yet these, these questions are unknowable you know even even that question who am i really 
we can't really answer that for ourselves, are we? We, we? we are an ongoing process of discovery. You know, we can, yeah, maybe we can kind of put some effort into wrapping ourselves up and presenting ourselves or making a self-assessment, but it's always based on perspectives, partial information, and we don't know what's going to evolve in the future. So even to ourselves, we're an ongoing discovery, and so everybody else has to be too. But we, we also um, learn to identify ourselves by concepts and labels, and we need to do that. So I don't know if any of you saw that film, Lion, a few, two or three years ago, about the Indian boy, young Indian boy from a village in rural India who got lost on a train on the way to... Bombay or Mumbai and ended up as a street child in Mumbai because he didn't have enough information about who his parents were and the village that he lived in. You know, he only knew them by his designations for them. And so it was impossible to find his way home. And he ended up on the streets and then in an orphanage and then being adopted into to, to Australia. And eventually found his family again through recognising a place on Google Earth. But it took him, I don't know how many years of searching in that way. So there's, there's a reason that we're taught to identify with a name, with a family, and then we gradually build on that. We gradually layer on these concepts that are just concepts that are handed down to us. And out of them we create a sense of identity. And it's useful. It's also useful to be able to label things as mine so that I can identify my car in the parking lot and I can give, get the right car keys and uh, so forth. So it's not that these, these concepts are empty or meaningless, they're meaningful, but they have a limited, a limited function. So what we are really, what are we really? Well, there's this, as we observe, as we've been observing, as we are observing our, our direct experience, we are a mind-body process, which is in a constant relationship with our surroundings and also with the other mind-body processes around us. I think it was Wittgenstein who said that the self is a shadow cast by grammar. So we have this, this word that, use, that we use to point to something and then what we do is we assume when we don't examine our immediate direct experience in the way that you have been doing, what the mind automatically assumes is that there's some kind of stable, continuous, independent, unitary thing there in the background. But actually when we look for it, we can't find it. Yeah. There's no little person in the control centre here in the middle of my head. 
And yet that, that assumption is really pervasive and it keeps rearing its head again and again. So that sometimes we, we show up as the owner of this body, sometimes we show up as the body, sometimes we show up as the owner of our thoughts or emotions, sometimes we show up as the observer of them or the observer of our experience. And this is one place where we can, we can kind of also assume a stable identity. But actually the observer is always shifting with the experience. You know, we think that, that we'd like to think, perhaps, that there's an observer independent of the experience. But how can you, how can you uh, observe without the thing being observed? You know, the two things are, we say, codependently arising. So not to be, not to feel destabilized by the fact that we're showing up in all these different multiple ways, that we're actually more than a thing, we're, we're an activity of selfing, of arising in different ways, according to conditions. So to think of ourselves as a verb rather, rather than a noun. One of the, the, the analogy that the Buddha used for a, a, the self was like it being like a chariot that's put together with different, from different components, but actually there's no essence of chariot there, it's just an assembly of components. An analogy that I, I would like to think of is, is of a river, like say the River Thames. You know, where does the River Thames begin and where does it end? Where do the tributaries that flow into the River Thames become the Thames? Where does the water that's flowing out of it cease to be the River Thames? Is the River Thames the water molecules that are flowing down the river? Is it the banks of the river? Is it the line on the map? In some ways it's all these things and it's none of them, but it's constantly changing. It's changing all the time. The bit that was there last week is now somewhere out in the ocean and so on and so we are very much like a river in that way when does when does your in-breath become you as opposed to your in-breath when does your out-breath cease to be you i only learned recently in the last few months that actually when we lose weight most of our weight is breathed out through our breath all this that we thought was my solid body has then disappeared into the air. Yeah. So we have this, it's useful to have a label for one another, but it's also um, limiting when we take it as something solid. But what happens because, uh, because the, this self that in an unexamined way we assume to be real is actually so shadowy. And because, as uh, Gavin said, we're kind of like these amoebas that respond or react to impingements from the outside in all these different ways. And it's almost as if we're multidimensional amoebas. <laughs> like we're being constantly impinged on. So this, this experience of being a self, of selfing, is, is necessarily going to be vulnerable and unsatisfactory. 
So what do we do? We seek to stabilise it. And what we do when we don't examine the actual nature of the nature of things is we seek to stabilise it by getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. So that there's this endless, and this is a kind of endless project because the goalposts keep shifting. I don't know if you've noticed that. They say the worst, the one thing that's worse than getting what you don't want or not getting what you want is getting it because then you find that actually doesn't quite do what you thought it was going to do for you and we're on to the next thing. I don't know got the Olympics going at the moment and you know you do hear you hear stories of people who devote themselves for years to one goal and I've had sometimes had that experience in my life too we really did focus on a goal and we somehow think that when we get that that's it and then we get it and what now and that that delusion that illusion is something that's really propped up by the um, encouraged exploited by capitalism and the consumer culture to keep us in a state of endless dissatisfaction and endlessly deluded that if we just got the right house or the right body or the right job or the right partner if our children just did well enough or that we would would we if we had the right holiday or if we found the right spiritual practice you know, then everything would be sorted. And it's been really, um, to me, it's been really evident during the time of lockdown where we've been living more, many of us, online than in the past. And that opens the door to just so many possibilities, so many ways in which we could be improving ourselves, bettering ourselves, becoming more knowledgeable and so on. And it's, it's just this endless pressure to shore up this sense of me, make myself good enough by adding something. So a very good practice as an antidote to this is to remember that one is good enough or to to introduce this idea of being good enough. I'm a good enough teacher. I'm a good enough student. I'm a good enough parent or good enough partner. That doesn't mean that we, you know, that we can't develop, that we can't be even better. But it's a much more um, resourced and empowered place to be, to be manifesting from that we're good enough. And anyway, what is ever going to be good enough when we're in the not good enough space yeah. who was the perfect who was the perfect teacher yeah. even an Ajahn Chah who was you know, widely reputed to be uh, fully enlightened and had a state funeral in Thailand attended by millions there would be some people who thought he was a great teacher some people who thought he wasn't there was a, a Western woman who had become a nun with him who then left and then became a born-again Christian and she came back to Thailand and said Ajahn Chah was the devil and uh, he just laughed and said maybe (laughs) because the truth is we don't know know? we 
his, this is his, it was his great mantra, everything is uncertain. So even after we, we start to question the solidity of self, we start to have seen through it, you know, we, we, we recognize this issue, we fall into the habit of recreating it over and over again by the process, the process of holding on. So just imagine a, imagine a scenario for a moment. Yeah. Imagine that you have gone into the lounge, you know, maybe after the, after the practice, and it's sunny outside, but it, you feel like being inside in a comfortable chair, and you find a comfortable chair in front of the window. You sit down, and it's really lovely, and you know, the view is beautiful, and finally your body that's been suffering all this dukkha on its meditation cushion can rest. And then you think, oh, it'd be nice to have a cup of tea as well. So you leave your beautiful personal blanket neatly folded on your chair and you go into the, into the dining room and you make yourself a cup of tea. And then you come back to your chair and somebody else is sitting in it. <laughs> what, goes, what goes on in your mind? What unfolds in your mind? That's my chair. What are they doing in my chair? Couldn't they see it's my chair? It's got my shawl on it. And suppose it's somebody who you just had an irritating encounter with or you saw them doing something really heedless or they're the one person who's been really annoying you in the meditation hall by their shuffling around and they're in your chair. And... You know, what does the mind concoct around that? It's like, oh, maybe it, it, it gets all very self-righteous. And it's like, oh, this is that person. They're so heedless. They're so, you know, they're so self-centered and insensitive and blah, blah. Or it might be somebody that you've kind of, taken a shine to and you see them sit down in your chair and you think oh maybe we've got a connection (laughs) they were drawn to my chair (laughs) maybe this is a sign (laughs) maybe we're going to get to know each other Or maybe it's somebody that you've, you've been feeling a little bit, you know, you've noticed that they, they might be struggling physically or looking like they're having a hard time and you, you see them in your chair and you're actually touched and you think, oh, great, I'm happy that they can be there. You know, wish them well with it. I'll find somewhere else to sit. And a lot of this is going to be conditioned, isn't it, by the, the mind state that you were in when you came to the chair in the first place. You know, if you're in a where you're having a story going for yourself that everything's going wrong with my day, you know, the sittings have all been going really badly, I can't do this, everything's just, everything's just going wrong, then that will just be another thing that's going wrong. If you're having a day where you're feeling kind of light and 
happy with the way things that are unfolding, you may just actually be quite fine with the fact that somebody sat in your chair. So we can we can start manifesting as a as a um, and everything that's going wrong, poor me, or a or a righteous me, an indignant me, or a generous me, or an, uh, even an amorous me. If it's our what's called our vipassana romances, found their way into uh, into the chair, yeah. the way that we kind of crock someone in the in the meditation hall and build a fantasy around them you know and then there might be on top of that there might be self-judgments that arise about me as a practitioner how should I be handling this situation there's this reality of the reactions that I'm having but what should I be doing with it if only I were a better meditator I wouldn't be disturbed by this or how do, I, how do I practice with this? Maybe, maybe actually I need to write a note to the coordinators and say, please, can you make sure to ask people to check whether a chair is free before they sit in it? And so on. You know. we, just, we spin in what's called proliferation or papancha. And you know, we've created a whole saga of me and them, self and other out of this, this simple arising. So this is, this is a, an example of um, you know, what Gavin was speaking about this morning, about uh, we, we have a sense impression, we come in, we see that something's happened, and given the context, it creates a certain sort of feeling tone in the mind. And then we want something as a result of that. We want to put it right, or we want that unpleasant feeling that comes from things having not turned out the way I was anticipating them to go away. And we go down a route of, okay, what do I think would fix that? So there's this unfolding, which is part of, part of what we call the chain of dependent co-arising, that we move from a contact at a sense door, the eyes, and also the mind here. So there's also the perception of who it is who sat in my chair that comes in into grasping onto some kind of identity, myself in relation to this and maybe what I'm going to do about it. And we take birth as that person. And this sort of thing is happening over and over again. So the meditation before before tea, between those in the, in the qigong sandwich I had this little thought ran across my mind about the fact that we've been given some butter in our tea room, the teacher's tea room upstairs and I happened to like butter rather than margarine and we just had margarine there and then I suddenly thought, oh I'm a bit hungry and started having this thought about Marmite sandwiches and suddenly I was in this whole imagining of myself making the perfect buttery Marmite sandwich, you know. And I'd taken birth as the, the consumer of Marmite sandwiches. And actually I was just still sitting here, but there was this, just like, the, you know, if you, have, if you have a dog, a pet dog, and you see them 
kind of in their sleep, chasing rabbits and things. We're doing this all the time. And that's, you know, that's on, the, on one level, it's completely innocuous. But on another level, it's just reinforcing that tendency to find the present moment insufficient and to, to recondition myself as somebody who thinks that they're going to eat their way to nirvana, <laughs> which is a conditioning that I find very difficult to deprogram, I have to say. Um, so, you know, that we, there's, a, there's a kind of... Um, yeah, a, a hook here that takes a lot of work to de-hook. So that's one way that we, that we create the sense of self is by clinging to a particular thing or particular experience or sense impression. We also recreate it by the thinking process, by these proliferations, elaborating our perceptions. And a way that we can really witness ourselves doing that, especially in a context with a lot of other people like this, is through the comparing mind. Because this is one of the ways that we, again, try to find security for this nebulous and elusive and slippery sense of self. As, am, I, am, I, am I okay? And so we measure ourselves as better than or worse than, or even the same as. The same as is another form of conceit. And conceit in, in this sense is used in the sense of creating a self-concept rather than just, you know, bigging ourselves up in the way we talk about somebody being conceited. So even, you know, thinking I'm worse than everybody in, in um, Dharma terms is considered a form of conceit. It's when we position ourselves uh, in relation to one another There was uh, something I heard on the news last week about um, research into... I think they've, they've known for many years that um, an overwhelming proportion of CEOs and uh, men in, in powerful positions in industry and politics and things are tall. And then they, they discovered that actually it's less the height that one ends up, up at that determines this than the the height that one has relative to one's peers as an adolescent, when you're about 16, that has a correlation to how successful one becomes in worldly terms in later life because our confidence is so conditioned by our relationship to our peers in adolescence. So if you're, you're taller than everyone else, it's, you know, it's, again, there are always exceptions to this rule, but as a generalisation, this has an effect on how we show up later. So we are we, we're inevitably affected by these ways that society and our conditioning kind of rank and um, position one another. And it's really important that we, we see through and beyond this to actually the people that are there. Because, again, you know, we, we can see with, through history how that, that sense of creating self and other and creating hierarchies has been exploited in really um, destructive, unskillful, harmful ways. So, you know, the, the whole doctrine of 
racial superiority that justified the slave trade, for example, is based on a complete fabrication, but it's very easy to... It has been, you know, historically very easy to co-opt people into falling into these simplified ways of seeing one another through particular stereotypes or or um, perceptions. So we do, we do, not only do we create selves, but we create others. We oversimplify to create others. Or like my friend's mother who voted for Brexit because she didn't want to be run by the Germans. Who was, she was still living in 1939, 40, in her mind. You know, I... I do respect that there might be other reasons that one might have legitimately voted for Brexit. I don't want to <laughs> make a big thing of that. But, you know, we, we, we stereotype, we see people through, through these lenses, we limit one another. And feeling how hurtful it is to be, to be seen in that way, you know. All of us want to be met as we are. We want to be seen for who we really are at the same time as we can't tell each other who we really are. So what are we asking when we ask that? It's like, isn't it that we want to be encountered in the moment in an open way, in a, with an open connection in the moment without anybody's preconceptions or judgments or expectations and how good it is when we receive that kind of contact with people. So we're practicing in this practice, we're practicing doing that for ourselves and we do that for one, practicing doing that for one another. You know, we're not relating so much on a silent retreat, but this quality, this way of showing up to one's own experience that we're practicing here, we can translate that into our way of receiving one another. So I was really moved by the song that Gavin uh, quoted from last night and I forgot I haven't asked him for the, the lyrics so I can't quote it back to you but that how we have this really powerful s- sense of longing to dissolve that, sen- that this feeling of separation yeah. and the kind of tongue-in-cheek remark of the Sri Lankan teacher that when there's no self there's no problem and so we 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 can see we feel and we see the discomfort of these different selves popping and arising and endlessly seeking satisfaction and feeling vulnerable and uh, you know coming into conflict or rubbing up against other selves and so we then we can think that the the what we need to do is to get rid of the sense of self. But this isn't something we, we can do, you know, because if, we, if we're working hard to get rid of the sense of self, who's doing that? Who's working to get rid of the sense of self? Actually, the way that it works is that that sense of self subsides, it grows more transparent, it grows softer through 
the releasing of the tendency to grasp things as I, me and mine, or the grasping of getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. So actually, by cultivating things like generosity and friendliness, appreciation, contentment, cultivating the ability to find rest in the moment rather than jumping back onto the treadmill, this is how we gradually dissolve the sense of self. You know, by not following those mental proliferations or seeing those mental proliferations and getting off the thought train using the skillful means that we're cultivating at the moment. So, you know, we can be in a hurry to grasp a concept of not-self and to to uproot it and get rid of it. But one of my teachers said it's it's sort of... Somebody was saying, you know, that I can see all these exit signs around the meditation hall but I can't find the exit from the sense of self. And she said, it's like you're trying to walk through the exit before you've done the work. It takes work to decondition this sense of grasping and clinging. It takes work to decondition the following of the thought of butter into somebody making Marmite sandwiches. Or the kind of seeing of the person who's been irritating you sitting in your chair to just leaving it at that, letting it go, or even seeing a person doing something and allowing that to irritate you in the first place. So this is really a lifetime's work of practice. And as we do that, the different layers of the self start to be seen, start to become more transparent But the good thing is that actually just a little bit of softening, just a little bit of letting go already feels better. So actually uh, the process of liberation is not something that you have to wait for a big bang when you suddenly have that major insight, actually. It's a piecemeal thing. And we just notice how um, opening the fist, actually there's a sense of easing a sense of release this is tasting the third noble truth for ourselves the truth of the end of suffering and actually this this, um, experience this conceiving of myself as separate from the world out there is, is the last thing that falls away as the Buddha mapped out this path of practice as one that actually has a logic to it and it's not that we get rid of this sense of self and then the craving and clinging fall away it's that, that we decondition the craving and clinging and then the sense of self falls away So what we need to do in the meantime is actually to use the sense of self to move beyond selfing. So to find ways of using this sense of self skillfully because we need, actually, we need that sense of agency. We need that motivation to actually um, create these skillful conditions. So we've talked about the... Well, we quoted Ajahn Chah as talking about the 
the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads beyond suffering. And in a sense, you know, re-manifesting a self that's still dissatisfied but's on a journey is uh, the type of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So setting skillful intentions, having the will to follow them through, using our imagination in skillful ways, cultivating a kinder self or cultivating kindness, cultivating generosity. This is how we start to undo selfing. So actually it doesn't matter if the the whole idea of self, not self, anatta, is there a self, do I exist, don't I exist, just feels like a complete, you know, head kerfuffle to you. It doesn't really matter because as long as we're developing kindness, generosity, non-clinging, the work is happening, you know, the work is happening and the understanding will evolve, will unfold. For all of us, you know, I don't claim to have understood everything. I'm on a, a journey of discovery too. And it, but I, I really have complete faith that the understanding unfolds through the practice. And so what we, what we come to be able to do or to, to, to do is to actually allow our lives to be guided by wisdom, to be guided by the Dharma rather than guided by our neuroses and our habits and our impulses. So the question becomes not is this, you know, is this what I want for my immediate gratification, but is this for my long-term happiness and welfare? and then making choices from there. But we can only do that when we've got enough perspective on what the moment is, unf- is unfolding and what the choice is in this moment to make that kind of, um, make that choice, make that decision, to step out of habit and impulse and into the stream of the Dharma. It always takes much longer to say anything than I think it's going to say. So I think that's more than enough. So let's just sit for a minute or two and see what the rain is doing.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.